Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to today's FEPS Talks. We just heard other women workers uh, chanting for equal pay during the 1996 milestone strike in the hairstyle factory, which led up to the application of the EU principle for equal pay for equal work. Uh, on the occasion of the EU Equal Pay Day on the 4th of November 2020, this podcast will therefore take a closer look at equal pay and what can be done to close the gender pay gap. Because yes, uh, even if we are recording the this podcast more than 50 years after this very symbolic uh, women's strike for equal pay. And as the European Parliament this week is marking uh, the very first gender equality week, unequal pay is still one of the most blatant forms of inequality perpetuating gender imbalances in today's Europe. As the leading progressive think tank, FEP strongly believes that a fair and socially just Europe cannot be achieved without gender equality. And that is precisely why we place women's rights issues at the very center of our work. My name is Leticia Thyssen, I'm FEP's Gender Equality Policy Advisor, and I have the immense pleasure to be joined by a very special guest today who could not be in a better position to talk about this issue. She is Irish, but also very convinced European, and her, her heart beats for workers' rights. She has extensive training and experience, uh, and after serving uh, as the Confederate Secretary of ETUC, so the European Trade Union Confederation, she was elected into her current position as the organization's Deputy Secretary General. Many of our listeners will already have guessed it. Uh, we are joined today by Esther Lynch. A very warm welcome to our podcast, Esther. Thank you. Uh, what a great introduction. I hope I can live up to it now. And to start, without further ado, I would like to ask you, Esther, uh, and to help us also to understand a bit better what is the current picture in the European Union when it comes to the gender pay gap. Uh, because we know that remuneration is one of the most basic elements binding an employer with their workers and it may bring a, a sense of uh, satisfaction of joy in some cases but in, in some cases also a great deal of injustice uh, and particularly so if we look at the persisting inequalities between men and women. In the EU indeed women are not spared from the gender pay gap uh, and this is even worse for women of color, immigrant women and those with children. Pick up on Edux's uh, recent but very telling statement uh, that the EU gender pay gap won't be eliminated until 2104 if we don't do something now. Uh, and the picture is uh, even worse if we look at some particular countries, uh, like for instance in France. So how would you depict the general picture of the gender pay gap across the EU in 2020? So I think what all those figures show is that it will take, in some cases, as you say, a thousand years. And there's a couple of member states where the gender pay gap is actually increasing rather than decreasing. And I think What that, that all goes to show, it's an unfinished revolution, that there have been significant gains, that including within the EU treaty, the obligation on member states to ensure that there's equal pay between men and women, that we've, that we've won a lot. But we're not finished. There's still a lot for women workers and our unions to do for us. So that's why we're very anxious that this year that we would manage to get the European Union to adopt and bring forward uh, a directive that will address the unfinished elements of the gender pay gap. And in particular, to address the undervaluing of work that's predominantly done by women. Because what we've seen all too often is that 
where jobs are predominantly done by women, then employers undervalue that work. Very often the work includes components of jobs that are often done unpaid by women in the home. So caring work, cleaning work. And because of that, employers seem to think it's okay not to pay women for that work or to pay women very little for that work. So what we want this gender pay directive to do is to give us the tools to be able to tackle that by putting an obligation on an employer to explain people's pay, explain why it is that the cleaner is paid so little, considering what's been shown very clearly in COVID is the real value of the cleaner to the enterprise, the real importance of caring work at this time that women have showed up, have delivered. And now it really is time for the commission to do that for women and not to say to them, you get to the end of the queue. And when we sorted everybody else, then we get around to closing the gender pay gap. It needs to be the opposite way around. It needs to be that closing the gender pay gap needs to come first, because without that, we can't have a sustainable recovery. So clearly here you are demonstrating why it is so urgent uh, that the European Union is taking this, uh, this issue very seriously. And we know that, formally speaking, the principle of equal pay for equal work and later on for work of equal value has been enshrined in the treaties since 1957. But as yet, as you demonstrated it, uh, we are still very far from the objective. Uh, and that is why, upon its entry into office, the von der Leyen European Commission uh, made gender equality one of its key priorities. And it namely promised to put forth this directive for pay transparency. How did trade unions uh, welcome this, uh, these proposals and how do they feel would be the main benefits of uh, such a pay transparency directives? So we were very much behind uh, Commissioner Daly and we've asked uh, President Ursula von der Leyen to support her so that she can bring forward the directive that we believe she wants to bring forward. And importantly, what we need to see in that directive is a better definition of work of equal value. So what we need to have is an obligation on employers to demonstrate why they came to the conclusion about the value of the work that the worker is doing and for us to be able to have the tools to identify whether or not that's on objective grounds and, and about a fair share for the worker considering their, their contribution or is it really some sex discrimination beginning to creep in? So what we want to see in the directive is a set of criteria, such as responsibility for people, the amount of knowledge needed to do the job, communication skills, physical demands, emotional demands, and uh, the conditions under which the work has to be undertaken. And then through that, by getting that information, the union uh, to then be empowered to have a, a collective bargaining to ensure equality within the company, But more, but more importantly, to, to ensure equality within the sector as well. So, so here clearly objective criteria play a, a very important role. Uh, but, but we see that now the, the commitment made by the, by the European Commission is already a year ago. And the, the Commission itself promised to, uh, to put something on the table after 100, year, uh, after, sorry, after 100 days to entry uh, into office. I'm going to start this sentence again because it's not 100 years. <laughs> but, but it feels like it. And actually, you're right. There's every danger it could end up being 100 years. <laughs> 
from now. Okay, perhaps that could actually stay. Uh, so, so yes, here uh, clearly objective criteria are an important uh, element. Uh, as we are almost one year after the, the entry into office of the, of the new commission, which is not so new anymore, and uh, their uh, commitment to put something on the table 100 days after the entry uh, in, in office. Where do we stand now and how do we explain uh, the, the delays pushing, uh, pushing forward this proposal? So I suspect that there has been an awful lot of stealth lobbying on this matter because it will be a game changer. If we have within EU law a clear definition of work of equal value, that will mean that millions of women will be able to address the undervaluing of their work and be able to to see significant increases in their pay. So I wouldn't underestimate the amount of lobbying that's being done behind the scenes by those uh, companies that want to continue to try to secure competitive advantage by making sure that they continue to be able to pay workers less than they deserve. And the other aspect of this is that many companies have it as a strategy to keep workers' pay secret. And the reason they do that, and they go to extreme lengths by including clauses in workers' contracts and telling them you're not allowed to discuss your pay. And of course, what that does is it makes it very hard to build a strategy of solidarity of workers discussing with each other, how could we make this workplace work better? Um, And importantly, how would we make it fair? Because they're not allowed to even discuss something as basic as their pay. And so I wouldn't underestimate the amount of resistance that there is to this. Um, And I also wouldn't underestimate the real opportunity um, for working women to, to make the type of revolutionary change that our mothers and grandmothers made uh, for us. And I think this is also about looking at the valuing of work into the future, because it's clear from everything we know about the digitalization and in particular, the use of artificial intelligence and robots, that the physical labor is going to be done by robots and the repetitive knowledge work is going to be done by artificial intelligence. And so what that leaves for human beings is going to be really important work in the field of emotional labor. It's going to be high contact with customers. It's going to be all of the tricky questions, all of the complicated matters. That's what humans are going to be doing. And yet, if you look at the the way in which those things are currently valued, in particular, the emotional labor, the taking care of people, that's significantly undervalued. So this is as much an investment into the future and our granddaughters and making sure that they, that they don't face a future of an increasing gender pay gap where they look back and say, well, I wish I had it as good as my grandmother had. Because no granddaughter should ever say, I wish I had it as good as my grandmother had. That we should always pave the way so that our children and our grandchildren have a better outcome than we have. In that sense, how can we actually ensure that we have political commitment towards the distribution of uh, resources towards what is actually now still lower paid jobs because they are so uh, so much associated with, the, let's say, the, the natural skills of women whilst they are actually real skills uh, that that need to be acquired and how can we mobilize uh, on on, on the real value of uh, essential uh, women's work? I think the biggest challenge we have at the moment is the dangerous myth that there is no inequality anymore, that 
everything is fine. There might be one or two bad cases, but that the, all of the tools are available and all it needs um, is for the worker to be able to stand up to their employer and then we'd have gender equality. Now, now everybody who works in the field of labour rights and who has represented workers against employers determined to do their workforce down or determined to do individuals down knows that that's not the case. Everybody, every statistic, every research, I'm not just talking research coming from trade unions, I'm talking research coming from employers, coming from universities. They all show that there is a gap between the amount of pay that women get and the amount of pay that men get. What we need now is to use COVID and to use the recognition of the value of work that's predominantly done by women, to use the increasing uh, recognition of that as the opportunity to get uh, recognition in the form of increased pay so that workers are paid equivalent to the value of the work that they're doing. And I think COVID has really brought that to the forefront and, and has made it clear to all of us who, who, even though we might have talked about it, didn't see it in a way that we should have always seen it. I think there's an obligation on us. I think there's a particular obligation on employers. I think there's an obligation on uh, politicians. When workers were asked, please show up, we need you. Those workers showed up. They did their job in dangerous circumstances. And now it's really not going to be good enough for politicians to say, well, thank you. It has to be, thank you. We're going to address the injustice and the injustice in equal pay. And we're going to bring forward the directive. We promised you. We promised this before COVID. COVID has demonstrated the need for it even more now. And so it's absolutely essential. Like There's no escaping the need to bring forward this directive. I think that women workers are very busy at the moment. If they're essential workers, they're very much still in the workplace. And with all the new problems of, of care and cleaning work in particular, um, but also in retail, that has a whole new set, set of stresses and problems. We've seen how badly some people are behaving when they go into, into retail environments, refusing to wear masks and, and treating the, the staff there very badly. So, so I think women are very busy. Um, I also think that for those women who are teleworking, they're managing the double burden of trying to do the job, uh, homeschooling, and and all of the research shows that nothing has changed in terms of who's bearing that burden. And then for other women who've lost their jobs, that the struggle, the absolute struggle of trying to make ends meet when you're unemployed, I know what that's like because I've been unemployed, and it's not easy. And I think all of this is is building up. Um, and I think that people are getting more and more frustrated, in particular when politicians promise something and then don't deliver it. And so I think that Ursula von der Leyen has to back Commissioner Daly to be able to bring this directive forward. And it can't go any longer than December of this year. If it was to be pushed back yet again and yet again and yet again, I think the credibility of a president of the European Union, the Commission, who stands forward and says, in my first 100 days, I'm going to bring forward a legally binding measure to address this injustice and then doesn't do it. That would just be so damaging um, if that was to happen. So my view is, is that there is a mounting head of steam behind this. Um, so many women workers I talk to are saying to me, when's it going to happen? Is it, you know, you know, when we'll be able to use it? You know, when will we, when will, when will we be able to take cases? So people are already preparing the cases like 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 people know the injustice and they're just screaming out for these tools. So 
So I'm excited about it. I'm, I do think it's a revolutionary mo- moment again, that, that it is that is a real opportunity for us to take that one third, that, that one quarter that's still missing um, in terms of equal pay at work and to be able to address it. And as we are waiting and waiting, how is ETUG reacting to that? Uh, do, you, do you have something to propose the Commission to help them in their work? So the Commission was supposed to publish a, a directive uh, on the 4th of November. So we're going to assist by uh, producing uh, a directive for them. So we've had legal experts uh, prepare this directive for us so it's legally sound. Uh, what we're trying to demonstrate by doing this is that this is not technically difficult because, of course, there are lots of employers that say very often the other thing they say, well, this is so very difficult and so very complicated. Um, it is technically difficult, but it is achievable. And what we have demonstrated within the directive is that achievability. So we've rest all of the legal, technically difficult questions, um, and we're going to present the commission with that directive on Equal Pay Day, the 4th of November, in the hope that this will make their job easier, but also that it will silence those critics who say this is way too hard and way too complicated and can't be done. Much has been said about the focus on what is one of the most obvious and direct causes of gender discrimination in the labour market. Uh, But the reality is way more complex than uh, the figure of uh, what is the gender pay gap. And indeed, if we are to achieve equal pay, It is to be coupled uh, with measures to address structural barriers as well, uh, which uh, women are faced with in the labor market. And here we're speaking of indirect forms of of discrimination. So besides uh, the the pay transparency directive, how can the EU help to lift those barriers that women face on the labor market, eventually leading up uh, to, uh, to gender inequalities? I think the moment of most discrimination at work that that women experience is when they become pregnant. And then the second moment of most discrimination is when they're trying to meet the cost of childcare, return to work. And then all too often, the employer will say to them, well, what we're really looking for is people who are committed to lead off on this project. You've just had a child, you've just returned. And so your turn will come later. And that's the type of structural Um, discrimination that we need to fight. And there's a number of elements to it. So one element is um, the cost of childcare, which makes very often within families, and because the woman has already paid less, um, to say, well, we can save money if one of us spends more time at home rather than isn't at work. And then in that circumstance, sums are done. And it's often the woman who's paid less. And so she cuts back on her career. And then that employer who already has thoughts about um, how committed women really are if they ever have children, ridiculous thoughts, but they have them, they still have them thoughts. And they then say, well, we really need somebody who's full time and fully available to us. And so then they don't get the chance to lead off on the type of projects which are going to have career advancement for them. And very often this is at the very moment where women need to be leading those projects to demonstrate their abilities and capacities and to to get the chance of the promotion opportunities. And I think that story is the story of structural discrimination that that women feel, and it has so many components to it, but each of them can be dealt with, that there are solutions to all of it. So for sure, it's about stopping discrimination, that flat-out discrimination, but it's also about making sure that the type of services 
um, the type of public services, the, the affordability in housing, affordability in childcare, affordability in transport. Like all of those things come together. So the level of public services. And you see this, that there's less inequality in those member states in Europe where there is a provision of affordable and free childcare versus those member states where it's the equivalent of a second mortgage. So it's really important that those would say other supports are, are put in place too. And that should be uh, a requirement um, in terms of infrastructure development. Um, it should also look very closely at the pay of the people in childcare because you've got that, that happening too, that very often the people who, who are working in childcare are very much uh, undervalued and underpaid too. Um, I saw... Uh, recently um, some examples of the equivalent conditions. The equivalent conditions for somebody who's working uh, in in a creche, the noise level is the same, I think, as they said, as a mine. But I, I was surprised to hear that. But um, and, I might, and, I, and I might have the mine wrong, but it was some other very, very noisy uh, working environment. And I said, now that's, that's something that you just don't think about, that you just don't uh, acknowledge because it's presumed that you would only have to measure the noise in an industrial environment that you wouldn't have to measure the noise for those working in childcare. So that that can be done. There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of addressing the structural causes of the gender pay gap as well. That, and that a lot of that about making it easier for women to be present um, and to be able to uh, take up opportunities and be able to develop their career. You're raising a, a very important uh, point here, which is something that... Uh, we have uh, recently uh, highlighted in the in, in a report that we that we published uh, not long ago together with Task, uh, the, the think tank uh, for social for, for action and social change, uh, which is looking at inequalities in the care sector, uh, and that one is precisely uh, looking at the working conditions of care workers, which tend to be very often adverse to other workers. Uh, and it also shows that, uh, that in fact, the, the relationship between uh, the gender pay gap and the employment gap is very complex because the care economy contributes largely to uh, women employment. Uh, but at the same time, it also, in a way, increases the gender pay gap due to the lack of recognition of that sector. And what's also quite interesting to see is that one of the key issues identified there is the lack of female representation in collective bargaining in those sectors. So what can be the, the role of trade union in changing these, uh, these institutional norms? I think that one of, one of the interesting things about the makeup of trade unions is that they're increasingly female. So you're beginning to look at the statistics from around Europe, where in some uh, unions, it's 52% um, already of the makeup of unions is, is with women. So I think that this will drive change itself. I started out a long, an awful long time ago now, when I was 21, I was elected and as a, as a shop steward in a factory. And it was a large factory and we made microchips. And it was so long ago, the microchips were the size of matchboxes. Let me give you, it was Atari's. We were making the microchips for Atari's. But the, the reason I stood for election was because although I was a full-time worker, none of the part-time workers were allowed to join the union. And that was how discriminated women workers were at that time. And then we campaigned and women joined the union. And not only did the part-time workers join the union, we then had an EU directive that made sure that nobody could be discriminated against because that 
they were a part-time worker. And that was one because unions understood it and got behind it. And the same for all, all of the equality developments that we've made at EU level. They've all been fought for, hard fought for, by uh, women and men in trade unions working together. And I think that this directive we're fighting for now, I see as many men calling for it and demanding it. Because there's no man in a trade union, there's no trade union official, there's no, there's no trade union activist, no, no union branch meeting that you will go to now where you will hear men, women shouldn't be in the union or women shouldn't be paid equal pay. That's in the past and it belongs in the past. And I don't see it um, having any future within the trade union movement. However, there are forces who are trying to push back on women's rights from outside the movement and who are very clearly have a view that women should should not be in the workplace and who have a view that women's work should not be equally paid, that it should be undervalued. So I wouldn't underestimate that. I wouldn't underestimate those forces of the far right um, who hold those views very strongly and who are trying to encourage working people to subscribe to those views. And so I think this is another one of the challenges that the trade union movement needs to take up, which is to bring the argument to the far right in a very clear way, that it's not working people who want to discriminate against each other, that there's no benefit for working people to keeping each other down, that we lift each other up, and that's and that's how we make all our futures for ourselves and our families secure into the future. So I think that the... Trade unions, um, I think women in trade unions, uh, I think our voice is getting clearer. We're seeing more, more than ever leaders of trade unions being women. I think that we should be able to be clearer with our collective bargaining agenda. It is a collective bargaining agenda that, that calls for a Europe-wide strategy as well, like that there's a, we could have a, a lot more connecting the dots. For me personally, as a... Uh, as somebody very interested in, in using collective bargaining as a way to make advances for working people, I have two responsibilities that nobody ever held in conjunction at the ETUC before. So I have the collective bargaining and social dialogue responsibility, and I also have the gender, the women's committee responsibility. And I took that because I wanted to do exactly this. I wanted to bring the two together. Um, in a way that that we would, like we all talk the technical term mainstreaming, but what we mean by that is to make it normal and common sense that within everything uh, that we're doing in terms of collective bargaining, that we're making sure that we consider how is this uh, increasing gender equality? Is there anything specific extra we need to do in this agreement? to address the past discrimination? Is there anything that we're taking as an assumption that it's okay and might not be? And in particular, in that context, I would raise artificial intelligence and the way in which performance-related systems have now become invisible. And I suspect, and a lot of the evidence beginning to prove highly sexist in its uh, interrogation, of the way in which women's performance is being evaluated. And the most extreme examples of that being very clear in terms of recruitment strategies. So you'll have an artificial intelligence um, program, look at CVs and the type of words women use, which are words which describe an inclusive team-based approach. There's a lot, women will use a lot of we 
in their CVs. You know, I supported, I helped, I encouraged, I, you know, men were used, I delivered, you know, I, I led, I, you know, and, and then you, so then you have an artificial intelligence program that's looking for led, it's looking for I, it's looking for all of that. Uh, and then, but all of that hidden and making it really, really hard uh, to be able to interrogate what's going on. So I think part of our collective bargaining has to be about looking at, at the new techniques that companies are using, you know, to say, well, you know, why are you assuming that there isn't, you know, gender discrimination creeping in there? What is the basis on which the algorithm is making decisions about who gets the job? What's the basis on which the algorithm is making decisions about who's getting promoted, what they're getting paid, who's getting selected for different tasks? All of that has to be part of collective bargaining. And part of the collective bargaining has to be a consideration of, is there gender discrimination creeping in there? To, to pick up on this, because uh, this is very important, and in order to finish also on, a, on an inspirational note, uh, if there had to be one empowering message uh, to our listeners, both women and men, that you wish them to remember from this exchange, what would you like them to take away? I think what I'd say is that we're all links in a chain. And we're links in a chain around Europe and around the world, but we're also links in a chain in history. We've inherited from our mothers and our grandmothers the right to equal pay. What we, what the moment for us and our link in the chain is to secure equal pay for work of equal value. And how we're going to do that is to get this directive to include that and get it over the over the line. They've Women have done it before. Workers have done it before. Unions have done it before. We can do it again. Uh, we know how to do it again. Okay, we have the extra challenge of doing it during a time of a global pandemic. But we can do this. And I'm, I'm sure that we will. And do you know what? I really want to be invited back to discuss the content of the directive pretty soon. So let's end on that note that I will come back and we'll all, and we'll all uh, discuss the benefits of the directive that Commissioner Daly will bring forward. Absolutely. So, so here clearly we, we, we all as progressives have a duty towards our daughters and great daughters, great granddaughters uh, for, for the future because here achieving equal pay, it's, it's not just about gender equality, but it's important uh, for, for human rights uh, in, in general. And it takes the effort of, of the society as a whole, uh, involving both women and men and much needs to be done, particularly uh, in, the, in the context of, uh, of COVID. So, Thank you very much, uh, Esther, for, for contributing to, uh, to this debate, but also thanks for, to our audience for listening to this, uh, to this podcast. Uh, if you liked it, make, make sure that you share it on social media. Stay tuned with FEBS uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our newsletter. And if you are curious for more, make sure that you look up our most recent studies on the topic, for our, uh, on, the topic on our website, including our latest uh, report uh, entitled Cherishing All Equally Inequalities and the UK Economy. And of course, don't forget the future's female. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>